Well, many of us gathered last Sunday evening for Theology Night. And uh, if you haven't been participating in those, please start to become uh, acquainted with it. It's uh, from time to time, every six weeks or so, we try to have one of these gatherings. Basically, it's an evening service. We get together, and lately we've been watching some really great in-depth documentaries about the state of the church and how we might worship the Lord better. And the one that we watched this last time was called Spirit and Truth. You might remember those two words from John chapter 4, where God is engaged with this woman at the well. He's talking with her about how he is the Messiah and how God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And then we spent some time discussing how important it is to worship God in a way that he wants to be worshipped. Of course, that is often very different than the way that mankind wants to worship God. We have to be careful that our Sunday morning services and our Bible studies and our efforts to seek God in devotion are not completely different than the way that He has called us to serve Him and to worship Him. So as your shepherds, we have been trying to help you guard yourselves against some of the pitfalls that often pop up in mainstream evangelical Christianity. We are sadly seeing many Christian churches in our culture turned into just another form of personal entertainment rather than the holy and reverent gathering of the saints whose primary aim is giving glory to God. But though we take the worship of God very seriously and we strive to be reverent before our Savior, I pray that we don't forget that Jesus came to give life, but not a a strenuous and burdensome life. He came to give life abundantly to his people. He cares about our joy. His goal is not to rob us of happiness but to replace the empty and the cheap version of happiness that this world wants to sell us with the true happiness that God is so capable of providing for us. Do you have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 9? This morning we are coming out of a section that showed us the finality of death. We will have no part in what happens here on earth under the sun after we breathe our last breath and we come before the throne of God. But Solomon takes pains to lift our spirits in the section that we're going to be studying today where we are commanded that enjoying life in the here and now is not only acceptable, it is commanded of us. It is God's demand for his people. There are many blessings to be appreciated in our simple everyday existence. And we should not be ashamed to enjoy them as long as we honor God in the process of doing so. And so we've got our scriptures open verse 7 of chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 10. It was my intention to preach all of these verses this morning, but we're actually going to look at verse 10 next week because there was just too much to share with you today. So it starts like this. Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray just briefly and ask the Lord's guidance as we study these things together. God, you are holy and good in your mind is infinitely greater than our feeble wisdom. And so we pray that in our weakness you would arrive, that you would give us clarity beyond our own understanding, Lord God, that you would give us the courage to follow after the things you teach us and to not just hear them and store them in some file 
never to be accessed again or only to be thought of occasionally, Lord God. Let us live according to this word. Let us be doers and not just hearers alone. Thank you for encouraging us and lifting our heads. We love you and thank you for what you will show us today in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge here is not entirely foreign to us. Remember, Solomon repeats this refrain or a version of this refrain four or five times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Though the search for meaning and fulfillment under the sun apart from God has frustrated the preacher of Ecclesiastes and the hope that Solomon carries through this whole process that is so girded by hopelessness is that God is still sovereign, even though he can't make sense of everything. Even though he can't understand how to find joy apart from God, there still remains a sovereign God who is willing to give joy, a God who has brought order to the chaos that we have created here by our sin. And so despite the frustrations of not knowing, Solomon trusts that God does know. We are met again with that reminder in verse 7, which declares that God has already approved what we do. That means he already knows what we're going to do. He already knows how our life is going to play out. He knows what we need. He knows what we desire. He knows what we are chasing after. He knows what distracts us. He knows. Now, this does not mean that you are free to do whatever you want, that God is okay with it. And since he's graceful and granted forgiveness, that your sins are inconsequential. That's not what Solomon is saying here. Some want so badly to believe that. They are hoping that someone will preach to them a God of such forgiveness that he allows them to just do whatever they want to do and he's just going to love them no matter what. But in reality, our God, though he is abundantly loving and though he is willing to pay the price for our sins, that price is steep. Sin is an ugly thing. And we, we ought not associate ourselves with wickedness and debauchery and cruelness and violence, the things that do not match the character of God. Ralph Wardlow, a commenter on Ecclesiastes, said it this way. He says, What we are admonished thus to do must be in its nature lawful and right. The hand may find to do what God has forbidden, but this, instead of being done with might, must not be done at all. In other words, when, when God says here through Ecclesiastes 7 to the preacher Solomon that he has already approved what we do, he's not saying that everything that we could do is approved of, but he has already approved a path for us. He already knows what we're going to do and he is always already working salvation through the, the lives of his people. God is holy and he does not put his stamp of approval on our sins. So this declaration that God has already approved of what you do is not the sudden dissolve of every moral boundary that God worked so hard to put into place. It is an, indic- um, it's an indic- indication that the basic framework of life is not to be despised, but has in fact been framed out by a master architect who has a plan and is working that plan to his glory. Some of those basic elements, like eating and drinking, wearing clothes, taking care of our bodies, sharing life with a spouse. These are all things that surely man has indulged in sinful ways. But they are not themselves wrong things. And to the contrary, God has made them a part of life that we might experience them and see his hand of blessing in each one of them. So let us learn how to enjoy these things in a manner that will result both in our own happiness and honor for the God that we love. We're given a series of joyful commands here in the passage. Verse 7 describes the first. Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine 
with a merry heart. And so what is commanded here, friends? We are commanded to take joy in what we consume. Take joy in what we consume. And so as we've heard already in Ecclesiastes, we are to eat and drink and be merry to the glory of God. So I want you to pause and consider the many places in Scripture where food and drink are spoken of not simply as fuel to keep the body alive, but as a gift from the hand of the Creator. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are are created and formed in God's image, God provides for them a variety, a vast garden, beautiful and filled with luscious fruit of every variety, and they are given great freedom to eat of those trees. Great, great many options were laid before them. There was only one tree that they were told not to eat of, but everything else was free for them to enjoy and to be blessed by. The introduction of sin does, not, uh, does actually complicate our enjoyment of food. We must be careful not to let our greed cause us to overindulge and see our bodies become unhealthy, to hoard resources for ourselves and see others go hungry. We must be careful not to covet the quality of food that others who are more financially blessed than us might be given. But despite the introduction of sin, the Word continues to prove to us that eating and drinking is a gift of God that He gave to His people that shouldn't be seen to us as a necessary evil. When God is showing Israel that the promised land He is taking them to out of Egypt is good, how does He reveal that to them? He sends in scouts to spy out the land. He shows them ahead of time what they are in for. And when they come back and they give a report, do you remember what they told their fellow Israelites? Before they grew cowardly and said, we can't possibly take this land, they were reporting that it was a land flowing of milk and honey, a place where the fruit was so abundant that they brought back a, a, a group of grapes so heavy they had to carry it on a pole between two men. These are blessings. These are good things. And it's what God had in store for his people as he brought them out of bondage and into a place of greater freedom. Before Israel could enter into that abundant place, God provided for their needs in the wilderness. And though the the food that he gave to them regularly and miraculously, this manna that came from heaven and this water that came from the rock, was a staple that they needed, it was also, you might not know this, but it was delicious. The scripture describes it as being sweet like honey cakes. God wanted them to enjoy the manna that he provided for them. In the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is described as our good shepherd. And we're told that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. What's on that table? Food. We're going to be rejoicing and celebrating together in heaven. Now, food will have probably a different function when we get to glory. I don't believe we'll have to eat it because we have to. It'll simply be a means of enjoyment and celebration for the Lord God because our bodies will no longer wither and fade or become sick or unhealthy. But there is a feast that we can look forward to. And that feast is described in Matthew 22 and Luke 12. Salvation through faith in Jesus is reckoned to an extravagant wedding feast to which we have been invited to enjoy and to celebrate together. In light of this great body of evidence, can we agree that God does not intend to deprive us from the simple blessings of food and drink that we can thank Him for, that we can savor, and that we can appreciate? So let us be grateful for the energy and growth that food and drink provides. Let's be Let us be thankful when we eat and we feel refreshed and God gives us strength for the tasks that he puts before us. 
Let us find joy in their flavor and variety. There is no shame in, in really sitting down at the table and enjoying a big plate of hot wings. Ah, so delicious. Or having a great big soda to, to refresh you on a, a hot summer's day. There's no, there's no shame in that. Let us find joy in the variety that God has provided. Let us be grateful for the opportunities that they provide us to get together. The table is where so many of our relationships are strengthened. God has given us food not just to to keep us breathing and to keep our blood flowing, but because food is a regular means by which we gather together, friends. We come to that table and we pray. We hold hands and we we thank the Lord God for what he has given. Do you think it's a coincidence that God has, has given you a regular reminder of your need for him? That a day does not go by where your stomach and your body does not tell you You need something you don't have. You must be provided for. God is humbling us through these meals. That's why we pray at every meal, to thank Him for what He has provided and to remember that we are a people who is dependent on the Creator, that we need His mighty hand, that He does not just create, but He supplies the needs of those whom He has made. We pray thanking that the Lord God is the one who meets those needs and we rejoice that He meets them well. Are, the, are there limits and boundaries to how we should enjoy food and drink? Ross read a passage from 1 Corinthians 10 for us earlier that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are necessarily beneficial for me. And in that passage, we are encouraged not to build artificial boundaries around what we can or cannot eat, thinking we will somehow be holier for denying ourselves the happiness of things like food. But we are also warned that like any good thing besides God, there is danger in letting the created thing becoming more important to us than the one who made it. The Apostle Paul also addressed that in chapter 6 of the very same Corinthian letter. He said in verses 12 through 13, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but watch this part, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So although God is calling us to enjoy the food that we eat, we should never enjoy it to the point where it becomes more important to us or more enjoyable to us than the grace that God affords through His precious Son, Jesus Christ. The Father has given us great freedom to experience this life with our senses, but the freedom should never be allowed to jeopardize the greater freedom we have and trusting our Lord and putting Him first in our lives. We need to take note that eating and drinking are described here in Ecclesiastes 9 as good. Which brings us to the question, is alcohol evil? To drink, is that sinful in and of itself? Not according to this command, friends. Christians have been given a degree of liberty that well-meaning people have from time to time tried to impair their freedom. And there is logic behind it. Scripture very clearly condemns drunkenness, doesn't it? We see how the conscience, how our inhibitions are crippled when we have consumed alcohol to the point where it begins to impair our judgment, begins to change the way that we think about right and wrong. And so for the sake of caution, there have been times when men have declared from pulpits that brothers and sisters in Christ can only glorify God if they're abstaining entirely from partaking of alcohol. 
Abstaining keeps me from slipping out of control. It, it helps a brother or sister who is tempted to addiction not to stumble again into sin. It is a noble gesture that declares in a way that we don't need alcohol or anything for happiness since Jesus is a greater joy to us. And yet, even with the best of intentions, when a man attempts to add to the law of God, we are subtly sending the message to God that he is not doing a good enough job of controlling us. Think about that for a second. When you try to add to God's law, which he has declared is sufficient, which he has declared is all that you need to be equipped for righteousness, when you insist on adding to that law, you are saying, God, you've done a pretty good job, but I'm just going to put the finishing touches on here. I'm just going to come behind you and add the things that we need that you did not give. And that is an insult to him. We must be very cautious Never to add to God's word. Consider what Paul says, Apostle, in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 of Colossians. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Notice he doesn't say according to my precepts. He says according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, which is denial of, the bodily, of bodily pleasures, and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Think about that for a second. Go ahead and leave that scripture on the, on the screen for a minute as we think about it. God is revealing to us through his apostles that well-meaning people have often tried to put new rules and insist that others follow by those rules to supplement the word of God. And they were seeing this in those who were Judaizers who came and said that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament, you have to comply with the ceremonial demands of, of Moses. And yet the apostle Paul is firmly digging his heels in and saying, listen, God has given us good boundaries. We don't need to supplement them. So there is freedom for us to enjoy what God has given, even alcohol. It's not a sin to have a glass of wine or to have a beer from time to time. So long as God is our king and we are enjoying these things within the boundaries that Scripture has set. Ephesians 5.18, we can declare this without reservation and do not get drunk with wine. And that, that applies to any substance, really. The drunkenness is what is focused in that passage. Do not be drunk on worldly things, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit instead. If it is your reasonable and measured choice to abstain from drinking alcohol, there's nothing wrong with that either. But let us not think that it cannot be enjoyed with responsibility by those led by the Holy Spirit. And let us not build boundaries beyond what God has set, thinking that we can approve upon his law. The second command that Solomon gives to us here is, take joy in the clothes that you wear. Let your garments be always white. Clothes are not just a tool used to cover the shame of our nakedness. And our nakedness is really only a shame because every one of us is a sinner, right? Adam and Eve didn't feel compelled to cover themselves in the garden until they had offended the laws of God. But clothes serve more than that purpose. White clothes 
are not easy to keep clean, are they? But they sure do look sharp. They have advantages too, practical advantages, especially in the arid environment such as the Middle East where it can get very, very hot in the summertime. White clothes reflect the rays of the sun. They keep the wearer more cool. They prevent one from becoming sunburned. And there is also a visual benefit in not appearing dirty and soiled. Uh, we are to be a people pure of heart, and so to come with nice, clean clothes in some ways reminds us of that. Without a doubt, the words of 1 Samuel still hold true. Verses, uh, verse 7 out of chapter 16, where he says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This still rings true. So God is not in some way saying that we need to become obsessed with our look or that we have to be very, very careful about the way that we present our clothes. Nevertheless, it is not a sin to pay attention to what we wear. Here we are instructed to clothe ourselves nicely. So if asceticism was the standard for God followers, you know what asceticism is. It is the denial of the worldly pleasures, thinking that by giving up anything good in this world, that it will amplify our appreciation of heavenly things. We've seen this throughout the history of the church in different ways and different times. Uh, the monastic movement, where men would separate themselves from society and live as monks. Uh, nunneries, where ladies would separate themselves away from society and, and forsake being married and would instead consider themselves married to God and would live very simple, basic, almost minimalistic lives. Often people thought that that was going to draw them nearer to the Lord God. But in some ways, it's denying the things that God has generously provided for them. These individuals are giving up some joys and some good that God wants to give to us that don't have to be a hindrance in so much as God is our strength. Life is not a beauty pageant where we are content to spend much of our energy caring about the surface image that we project. But God is a beautiful God. And in so much as we bear His image, there's nothing wrong with closing, closing ourselves nicely and in clothes that are comfortable and that help us to not be hindered in our day-to-day -day activities. But think also about the language Scripture uses to describe our testimony to the world, that we are to be clothed with the righteous robes of Christ. For instance, in 1 Peter 3, it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart and with the imperishable beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very, very precious. So friends, what we look like on the outside is not of zero value, but it cannot compare to the, the light that we can shine when our heart, which is fixed on God, shows goodness and mercy and righteousness and reflects the character of the God we serve. In so much as you have put off the old man of Galatians 3, what you project to the world should be a beauty greater than your own. You should live to shine the light of Christ. That does not have to be done in rags, by the way. Our next command is similar to the one we just talked about in the second half of verse 8. It says, Let not oil be lacking on your head. This indicates you are taking joy, you are to take joy in caring for your physical body. Take joy in caring for your physical body. When you anoint your head, you are putting a, a kind of fine oil upon your, upon your crown. It had a, a number of, of values and benefits. 
We're not talking about the anointing that was ceremonial and is often described in Scripture. Uh, anointing that was done ceremonially was done to set someone apart for a special task that God had provided for them. They were either going to be a leader or a king or a prophet or a special representative of the Lord. Messiah, or the name Christ, literally means anointed one. So Jesus, of course, is the pinnacle of those set, set apart for good works by God. But the anointing of verse 8 refers to something a little bit more simple. The simple luxury of using something to make yourself smell better or to hydrate your skin. You know, in those arid environments where there was dust and sand, uh, it was easy for your skin to become dried and cracked. And so what Solomon is saying is don't feel ashamed to put some oil on your skin, to smell nice in the company of others, to, to make sure that your skin doesn't become so dry and cracked that you're constantly burdened by the distraction of the pain and the discomfort that you're going through. The senses are not everything, but neither are they nothing. Look after your physical body. Care for it for what it is. If you are a believer, it is the temple where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. So life can be more enjoyable when we pay attention to our health and spend a little bit of effort on making our physical existence enjoyable. That doesn't mean we're down at the spa every week. And I'm sure there's, there's probably a wife who's justifying her nails right now to her husband because uh, we're told to look after our physical bodies. Take all of this with, with the full counsel of Scripture. But we don't need to deny ourselves to be a holy people in the way that some deny themselves. We need to put the Lord first and be thankful for the blessings that he has chosen to give to us. But you might say, well, what about Romans 13, 14? Romans 13, 14, what does it say? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. The term flesh here in Romans and generally in the New Testament epistles as written by Paul is used in a very narrow way. It's referring to the desires that would war against God's commands for us. Solomon's commands to enjoy life are not a license to sin, but an acknowledgement that the created world is not itself evil. It is tainted by the wickedness of sin that we have brought into it. But when God made it, what did he call it? He called it good. It is beautiful. We see a picture of Christ in what he has made. So the physical world is not itself an evil or a, or a wicked thing. When you read in certain books of the New Testament, such as 1 John and Colossians, you see what, what the church is up against. And one of the earliest heresies that began to rear its head just as the church was beginning to pick up speed was the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that all things exist in two parts. It was, it was a Greek philosophy that eventually worked itself into a kind of a kind of overlay that would affect other religious beliefs. And it impacted Christianity in the first couple hundred years of its existence. Gnosticism taught that we are part physical and part spiritual. That the spiritual part of us was made by God, but the physical part of us was not. That the physical part of us is indeed evil, and that we should live our lives denying the physical part of ourselves and only focusing on the spiritual but in fact, Gnosticism denies the goodness that God wants to give to us. It doesn't give him the glory he deserves for creating the physical material world. God will one day redeem this world from the sin that we have infected it with. But he won't transition us to a fully spiritual existence. Instead, he will bring a, 
a purified and a better physical existence for us, a new heavens and a new earth. So don't get caught up in this idea that in order to be a holy person, you must absolutely deny everything that might make you happy and put a smile on your face. That's not an abundant life. We put God first, and we are thankful for the good things that he gives. There's one more command we want to look at before we conclude today. We are to take joy in covenant marriage. Take joy in covenant marriage. Enjoy the life with Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun. Now, when he says vain there, be careful. He's not saying that your life is meaningless. That word vain has different connotations. He's speaking more about the transitory nature of life, that it is temporary, that it is not the eternity that we strive for. So enjoy this life, this life under the sun that he has given to us, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Marriage, friends, is to be enjoyed. It is not just a social tool, a device to populate the earth. It is a gift from the Lord, and we are to strive to find happiness in it. Genesis 2.18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And again, Hebrews 13.4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So we are to enjoy our union. Your spouse should be sacred to you, and you should not be ashamed of thanking the Lord for them, of enjoying their company and the presence, the attributes that God has provided for you, many of which you do not possess yourself might take note of the fact that it tells us to enjoy the wife whom you love, singular, not the wives. This must have been a sobering truth for Solomon to write. I wonder, did he pause after he penned these words and stop and have a sobering moment of reflection as he considered his own life, a man who had 700 wives unto himself and another 300 concubines, Did this truth that springs from not his own thoughts, but from the inspiration of God, did it humble him and give him a sense of regret? Did repentance come over this man? See, Solomon never knew the satisfaction of being content with only one wife. His marriages could not be a proper picture of God's devoted love for his church. And the difficulties in in managing all those relationships must have been a harrowing and and burdensome thing to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So love your one wife. Love your one husband, church. Be committed to this covenant, even though the covenant of marriage can be very difficult to stick with and and to hold to. I acknowledge this morning that not all marriages are equally enjoyable, but there is always something to be thankful for in your spouse. It is a curious thing that in marriage, the earthly relationship we should value the most that we tend so mightily towards seeing every bad thing while ignoring the multitude of good things that God has provided for us in our husband or our wife. So in so much as you can, be committed to seeing the blessings. See the good. Thank the Lord for the good things that come from this union. If you're both pursuing the Lord, there should be an abundance of joy coming from that friendship of promise. If your spouse does not know Christ, then rejoice that there is one person who you can display his light and his love to every day as you serve them, as you care for them, as you lift them up in prayer. We are subtly commanded here, by the way, not only to enjoy our wife, but to love our wife, aren't we? 
Love is not a feeling outside of our control. It is a commitment and a choice that we make to another person. And in so much as we choose to love our spouse, we can choose to enjoy the parts of them that reflect the image of God that they bear. So don't read this as, enjoy your wife if you love your wife. Two responsibilities. Love your wife and enjoy your wife. Love your husband and enjoy your husband. I think we would be in error to ignore the obvious implications in this command also, to rejoice in our spouse, is the idea that the marriage covenant is ratified by sexual unity and intimacy. Just as man has hastened to make alcohol consumption sin when the scripture does not say that it is, there have been times in the history of the church when sex has been taught to be solely for the purpose of procreation. But read your Bibles, friends, and see that physical affection in a covenant relationship are a comfort and a blessing that God intends for us. We go again to Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. What is he talking about there? He's talking about sexual union, that a married couple should not neglect this aspect of God's gift of marriage. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Radical at the time this was written. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We see almost a, a microcosm of what we've been learning this morning in that passage, that God has these desires that, that are part of us, that if they are not governed by his hand, then they can definitely become sinful. But if they are used in a way that is honorable to him, and that are according to the scriptures and the boundaries that he has set, they are a beautiful thing, something to celebrate, something to rejoice over, something to enjoy. I have been using the term spouse here universally so that men and women alike can grasp the application of the text. But there is significance in the fact that Solomon specifically said, husbands, love your wives here. Enjoy the, the wife of, that God has provided for you. You might remember back in chapter 7 where there was a passage of scripture that many people read controversially where it seemed as though Solomon was downgrading women by saying that, God, or that Solomon did not find a wise one among a thousand. But here we get proof to the opposite, that Solomon sees that we should cherish women, that women are an important part of his creation, that we should uphold them with righteousness, that we should support them in truth, and that we should appreciate the blessing that they are to us. And Adam, without an Eve, is a very unhappy creation. And that's not to say that every single person is to be married. You don't have to be married to enjoy your life. 1 Corinthians 7 says in verse 28, But if you do marry... You have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those whose wives, who have wives live as though they had none, for the present form of this world is passing away. You've got to handle that passage carefully. That doesn't mean that you're to be David Livingston and just leave your wife and your family and go off on radical missions and make a name for the Lord at the expense of the ones you have covenanted to love. But what it does mean is that we should always have the proper perspective that a marriage is stronger when Christ is the first love for both husband and wife and when our spouse is second to that. 
when we are loving the same object together, when our heart's affection is committed first and foremost to Father, Son, and Spirit, then our union to one another has such a stronger foundation than if our first love is another human being, another fallible person who falters and fails, another person who will not be to us what we need all the time. The church, as God's redeemed bride, striving for sanctification, beneficiaries of a priceless grace that should permeate every aspect of what we do and who we are, must not ignore this most simple of commands. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. Maybe you haven't memorized much scripture. Memorize this one. Two words. It's not that hard. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. We do that keeping in mind that there is a time to, to mourn, right? God is sovereign over our lives. And there will be days when you're not brimming with joy. But there should always be an undercurrent of rejoicing if you have seen your sins washed away by the suffering of our Savior. If you have seen His resurrection as a promise and a seal that your death will not end you, but that you too will rise again with the Lord and be given a newness of life. Friends, we are not Epicureans. Epicureans were a a philosophical group at the time of Christ who lived only for the here and now. Uh, They didn't acknowledge an afterlife, and so they were trying to milk as much out of their time on earth as possible because they thought that's all there was. That's not who we are, friends. We have a greater joy. But earthly enjoyment is of the Lord, and we will benefit from letting Scripture train us how to take that joy in such a way that God is glorified. All of this common joy is our portion in life. It is what He has set aside for us. It is the blessing that we need What the Lord has given to us for our good has been initiated by His sovereign hand because He knows what the heart of man needs. Remember what we read at the beginning of the service last week? Matthew 6. And it says, Do not be worried, my friends, about what you will drink or what you will wear, for the Father knows you have need of these things. And He is able to provide them for us. And so let us rejoice at our portion. Remembering also that our portion in life is different than our portion in death. When you go to be with the Father in heaven, you will no longer be married in heaven. You will no longer need food for sustenance. Your bodies won't be hindered by sin's limitations, so your portion will change there. The greater realize, uh, realities having been realized, you will receive a joy from the presence of the Savior that, that exceeds in every way the joy that you have here. So do not be dominated by the simple pleasures of the moment. Learn to rejoice in them obediently. But do not be swept away by the comfort that they afford you, for they are, there are greater comforts to come. Yes, there is even a greater comfort now. How can food ever be considered better than Jesus? How can nice oils that smell good and, and moisturize, how can they, the finest clothes compare to what Christ has done for us? Even marriage cannot compare to the gift he has given. Every one of these blessings is trumped by the provision of Jesus Christ. Think about the way that the Scripture describes our King and think about how it applies to this passage here today, that Jesus Christ is our bread, that He is our cup. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that, don't we? Jesus is the best of grooms who loves His bride, the church, and is preparing a place for her even now in heaven. He loves her to such a degree that He would lay His life down for her. It is Jesus that clothes us with the pure, spotless robes of righteousness never to be soiled again. 
Christian, Solomon was right to urge his readers to rejoice in the common things of life, but how much more so can we rejoice having had the perfect ways of our Redeemer revealed to us through the pages of history? Let us thank him for that provision as we have a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing a song, and then don't rush out because we've got something right after the song. We're going to be presenting to you today three new members. Let's bow in prayer. God, we thank you for the grace that you have afforded to us. You are holy and good, and we praise you. Help us to continue to think of these things as we go about our day, Lord, and may this whole day be dedicated to your worship. May our lives be a picture of your grace, and may we enjoy the things that you have given, Lord, even in the midst of trials and hardships. Let the world see that we have found a greater joy than this world can offer. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.